Hello, everybody. Welcome to State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about the stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and today we're in for a real treat because we're going to be joined by golf writing royalty. Lorne Rubenstein has been the correspondent for the Toronto Globe and Mail in Canada and other publications around the world for 30-odd years. He's also written 13 books on golf. His latest, Mo and Me, about the great Canadian golfer Mo Norman, is getting rave reviews at the moment. But Lorne will hang up the typewriter at the end of this week, well, certainly for his regular column in the Globe and Mail, and he joins us today to chat about his time in golf and what's in the future. Lorne Rubenstein, welcome. It really is an honour to have you with us. Thank you, Rod. Uh, nice to be chatting with you. Yeah, and uh, it's been some years. We just discussed before we came on air. I think it's been about eight years since we spoke when uh, when Mo passed away back in 2004, which brings us nicely to the book, Lawn. Why wait eight years before writing this book since Mo's passing? Well, uh, I just wanted to take some time and uh, reflect on what uh, Mo meant to me as a golf writer, and uh, it occurred to me a couple of years ago that uh, he had a big influence on me as a writer. Uh, and so I decided to look at all of the notes and interviews I had done with him over really more than 30 years and going back even uh, past that when I first met him um, when I was a kid, uh, 13 years old. And uh, he uh, he made it, had an impact on me right away when I ran into him uh, at a driving range here in Toronto. And I was uh, completely taken with the way he hit the golf ball, so different than anybody else. But uh, I was also taken by his unusual habits, mannerisms, way of speaking. And later on when I became a golfer, writer i was uh continued to be fascinated by him and he remains to me the most interesting golfer i've ever met uh, in all of my years writing about the game and following it well he's an intriguing character in two ways isn't he lawn the extraordinary ball striking which is legendary one of the few players other tour pros would stop and watch just to see him hit balls but also because he had this unusual personality a lot of people put it down to an accident that he had early in life that there may have been some minor brain injury you would have had a very different uh, a relationship with Mo than most of the golf writers because, of course, he wasn't an easy person to get to know. He was shy. He didn't like the press or the public spotlight. Uh, you must have had a very special and different take on Mo than, than most of your colleagues and peers. Well, I got along very well with Mo. Um, I was always interested in the psychology of the game as well as the, um, the mechanics of the game of the golf swing, and uh, Mo uh, encompassed those two interests uh, in a very intense way for me because of the way he swung the golf ball and also because of what you might call his, um, you know, other sorts of, um, uh, I don't know, limitations, I suppose we could call them. I mean, the question is, or was, why, if he could hit the golf ball so beautifully and win just about everything in Canada except for the Canadian Open and he came close to winning that, did he not succeed at the highest levels of the game when people like Ben Hogan would stop to watch him and Tiger Woods would say that uh, he was one of only two golfers who truly owned their swing, Ben Hogan and uh, and Mo. Uh, so uh, very interesting psychological study to me and also an interesting study from the mechanics of the game. And I did get to know him very well, considered him a friend, um, and uh, I never laughed at him. And uh, I think that a number of people did laugh at Mo. He was easy to laugh at. And uh, somehow we struck up a good friendship uh, when I was a kid and then later on starting to write about golf. And I, was, uh, I never stopped being interested in what made him who he was. And that's why part, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and look at him. He did have a difficult time of it, didn't he, Lorne, Mo? When he went to the U.S. tour, he was, uh, he was ridiculed by some of his fellow players. He wasn't, certainly wasn't the sort of tour pro that we see in this day and age. He was, looked somewhat disheveled much of the time. He was just such a different character, wasn't he? And uh, it seems to me from the, the little I know of Mo, and you would know better, that uh, he was kind of quite withdrawn because of that. Is that a fair assessment? 
that he was with Ron? Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that last part there. Yeah, he he seems from the outside and from the little that I know of him that he was quite withdrawn, and I wonder what that had to do with the way he was treated by his his fellow tour pros. Well, he was withdrawn. Uh, he was so different, and he knew that he was different, and he could hear people kind of cackling at him from time to time, tour pros. Uh, remember, he was coming up in the 1950s when golf was becoming popular uh, in America, and it was the era of Arnold Palmer, and uh, who was, of course, so charming, and uh, everybody was fascinated uh, with, with Arnie and then Jack Nicklaus later on. Um, but uh, Mo was just so outside um, the realm of uh, kind of what we might call the conventional golfer that uh, you know, teeing the ball up on Coke bottles, dressing such a different way, outlandish colors. His clothes were torn. His slacks were torn. I mean, his teeth were snaggled, uh, and uh, they looked like fangs. He just didn't fit into the kind of golfer who um, you might say people were becoming uh, very interested in in those days, and the tour was trying to establish itself. And uh, some players did laugh at Mo, and uh, he felt that he was run off the tour. Yeah, indeed. Later in life, he did garner some of the respect he deserved for his extraordinary skills, though, didn't he? Which I, you would know, obviously, better than most. I imagine that would have made him quite happy. It did. I mean, he really felt that people respected him for the way he hit the golf ball, and uh, he started to feel more comfortable doing public speaking, although in a kind of uh, automatic fashion. You know, if you heard him a few times, you know that he was speaking um, almost the same speech every time, but uh, that was okay. It was always very interesting, and he started to get comfortable giving clinics, and he would show up at the Canadian Open and other golf tournaments, and players would ask him to come out and hit golf balls, and he always did that. And uh, then by the mid-'90s, when he was finally belatedly inducted into the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame, and when Titleist, uh, I'll do credit to Wally Uline for this, started paying him $5,000 a month, for the rest of his life, just for being who he was, no strings attached, uh, um, a back-end scholarship, you might say. That's how Wally Uline referred to it. And so he did feel he started to get the respect from his peers. And uh, so that, that was very nice in the last 15 or 20 years of his life. Indeed. For, for those who may not be aware, give us a, a, a little thumbnail sketch of some of the, ex, the, of the extraordinary talent that Mo had. There are amazing stories about the golf shots that he could hit and the things he could do with a golf club and a ball. Right. Well, in my book, I try to really um, relate stories that I saw firsthand. As I often tell people when I give talks about Mo, there are thousands of stories about Mo, and some of them are even true. I mean, a lot of them have become kind of folk tales, but <laughs> I did witness many, many over the years, and uh, I can attest to his ball-striking ability. Uh, one, when I was uh, um, playing in a, there was an amateur golf tournament in Toronto called the Eager Beaver, which started out our Ontario amateur season every year, and Mo would show up. He was comfortable with this club, and he would give a little clinic on the first tee. It was a short par four, about 320 yards, and there was a stream down about 200 yards. So you hit about a four iron off the tee to lay up, and there was a hydro wire strung uh, across the fairway 50 or 60 yards down from the tee. And uh, if it was a local rule, if you hit that hydro wire, you'd replay your, your tee shot. Well, Mo would give his little clinic, and he would say, I'm going to hit that uh, hydro wire a couple of times in 10 shots. And I know how ridiculous it sounds, Rod, but I saw it, and he could hit that little hydro wire, that thin hydro wire, as thin as a fingernail, if that, once or twice out of 10 times. And uh, that's an index to me of his ball striking ability. He just knew exactly what he wanted to do with the golf ball. I mean, he could uh, he could hit the ball left to right, right to left. He could hit it up in the air. He would say things like, all right, what do you want, first floor, second floor, third floor? I'm going to hit this first floor. I'm going to hit this one third floor. And he'd stand there, and you'd be just captivated by what he could do, um, just about anything he wanted to do with the golf ball. Indeed. The one that always intrigued me, uh, Lorne, and you can confirm whether this is true, I did 
read a story one day that he put on a, a demonstration for some tour pros one time and there was a tyre hanging from a tree about 180 yards away and he was hitting balls through it one after the other with a four iron. Is there any truth to that? It wouldn't surprise me. I didn't see that one personally, but that's the kind of thing he could do. I mean, a tire would have been a big target for him. It's <laughs> is it through the tire. But I tell a story in the book of uh, he's at a golf course in Florida, and there's uh, the golf pro uh, teaching uh, professional, a good friend of most, Craig Shanklin, and there are two women walking. It was a kind of a housing development golf course. A couple of women are walking across the fairway a couple of hundred yards out, and they were filming Mo, and Craig Shanklin says to Mo, Mo, you better stop while those women are walking across. He said, oh, no, 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 that's okay, that's okay. And somehow he could sense instinctively uh, the pace at which they were walking, when his golf ball would land, and he hit this forward down there, and the forward just went right between them as we were walking down across the fairway. I saw that one. Wow. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. Jeff Shackelford was going to join us today, Lorne, but we had some technical difficulties, as you well know, in the last 10 minutes. So, unfortunately, he's had to leave us. But he asked a question I think a lot of people have probably asked, and you can answer it for us. Why didn't anybody try to copy Mo? He had a very unusual action, didn't he, for a, for a golf swing? It's been said he was the only true one-plane swinger in the history of the game. Why haven't others tried to copy his action? Well, I think they have. Um, you know, here and there, people have tried to copy him. Nobody has succeeded, you know, at a high level at tournament golf. There are a number of people who've tried and uh, um, to do it. But I think Mo hit 600, 800 golf balls a day from the time he was a kid, and that was part of it. Uh, also, he stood so far from the ball with his arms outstretched as if his arms would come out of the sockets, out of his shoulder sockets. And I think most human beings, most of us are pretty self-conscious. And he looked so different than anybody else that to stand up there in front of people um, and, and hit the golf ball, to stand the way he did to it, uh, I think that we're pretty self-conscious about it. But I think even more than that, I think his the way he hit the golf ball and the way he played the game is so intimately tied up with his personality and with his psyche. Uh, he played very, very fast. He never took a practice swing in his life. And I think he never took a practice swing in his life because he had to get out of the public eye. But also, by never taking a practice swing in his life, he also neutralized, you might call, the psychological complexity of the game. Golf is a game uh, which you have to, you try to make it into a reaction sport. There's a target out there, but you can freeze over the golf ball. Mo needed a target to react to. He had trouble with blind shots, and the longer he stood over the golf ball, he must have learned very young that he couldn't he, he couldn't make a swing, so he played very, very quickly, never took a practice swing. And I think that uh, just it's, it's also wrapped up in a package with who Mo Norman was. And the fact that um, he needed a target to react to and had to play very fast also uh, relates to perhaps the, um, the there may have been an injury when he was a kid, five years old, a slight brain injury when he was uh, kind of uh, hit by a, a car and one of his cheeks was, was brushed. And there's evidence, um, well, there's evidence, you might say, uh, I don't know if the right word is evidence, but I had a neurologist look at a video of Mo and uh, he felt that Mo showed all of the characteristics of uh, frontal lobe damage. And one of the main characteristics is you cannot retain an image in the mind's eye for very long. Uh, so uh, Mo had to play quickly. If he stood over the golf ball, he couldn't swing, and that's why he didn't take a practice swing. And bingo, he played golf as if it were hockey or baseball. He just reacted. Mm. In many ways, he seems from the outside to be a tragic figure. Did he see himself that way, do you think? 
Uh, I think maybe early on he might have. He always would say things like, oh, if I had more money, if I had more money, if somebody would have supported me, I could have gone down to the American tour and played and never had any money, never had any money. But I think later on in his life he didn't see himself as a tragic figure at all, and I certainly don't. Uh, um, I think that he felt he had a good life. He enjoyed his life. He did what he wanted to do, he would always say. Every day he hit golf balls and he went around from course to course, and he he played golf. That's all he wanted to do. He was... uh, he was a kind of a one-trick pony, you might say, in that way. All he cared about was hitting the golf ball as accurately as he could, and he knew he had the respect of people. So I don't really see him as a tragic figure at all, and, and, I'm, uh, and I was glad to see that as he got older, he didn't see himself that way either. Mm. What did your, your colleagues, your, your fellow golf riders make of him? You obviously had a, a very different relationship with him to most of them. You would have spoken to, to a lot of your colleagues over the years, but he didn't get great press for a long time he was almost a an undiscovered gem wasn't he i don't recall reading anything about mo before maybe the early 90s i mean i'm not uh, not not particularly old obviously i didn't wasn't around in the 50s and the, the 60s and the, and the 70s but he, he seemed to go completely under the radar for most of his career from what i can tell well, he did uh, outside Canada, that's true. But in Canada, if you look back at clippings from the 50s and 60s and 70s, you see that there was quite a bit written about Mo, and a lot of it wasn't with much respect. Um, some of the writers of the generation before me, uh, I think that um, uh, they they did laugh at him, called him the clown prince of Canadian golf. There were articles in other publications as well um, that uh, didn't really show much respect for him, and they just looked at him um, kind of very quickly and superficially and just saw his outward uh, his uh, habits and mannerisms and it was easy to laugh at him because of that so it's true that uh, I think that there were writers though um, some who did uh, really respond to his ability to hit the golf ball the ones who knew golf and how difficult it was but if they didn't know golf uh, then Mo was easy to laugh at but uh, I think that some of my colleagues quite a few of my colleagues I would say my age group or younger uh, after about the mid-1980s they started to, to write much more positively Mo and really um, respect him as a kind of a, a Canadian icon, you might say, and uh, I think that others started to see that as well in the United States, and, uh, and as you say, there was a the big article in Golf Digest by David Owen in the mid-90s brought a lot of attention to Mo. Yeah, and I, I recall reading a book probably around that same time uh, that somebody had written. It is one of golf's great stories, and in golf, we consider our great stories generally be about the Hogan's and the Nicholas's and the Tiger Woods's and the amazing achievements and the collection of trophies. He's one of golf's great stories that doesn't have that element, though, isn't it? The, the big tournaments that he didn't win and, and all those. But he is one of golf's great stories. There, there's a movie in there somewhere, surely, isn't there, Lorne? Well, there, uh, Barry Morrow, who did the movie Rain Man, um, has been trying to make a movie about Mo. Um, nothing to do with my book, but I've, I've been in touch with Barry and played golf with him. And he became fascinated with Mo after he read, read David Owen's piece. And he's been trying to make a feature film about Mo and trying to get the financing together. And it, uh, it may still happen. We'll have to see. And uh, you're right. There's a cinematic quality to Mo's life. And uh, um, there's been some interest expressed in, in my book. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens there. But uh, it just um, he, he he was so unusual and so far beyond what we think of as the um, kind of the conventional golfer that uh, there's a tremendous interest in. It's been amazing to me the response I've gotten uh, to the book. It's, what's interesting is that um, we meet a lot of people in our lives, but uh, we don't remember many of them that we meet for only 30 seconds or so. But everybody who met Mo, even for the briefest of times, remembers the encounter that he or she had with him. And that's what I've noticed at giving talks around this book at uh, a lot of golf clubs and, and other places, that if somebody met Mo 
for 30 seconds, they remember. People come up to me all the time and say, gee, you know, I saw Mo here and I saw Mo there, and, and they remember exactly uh, where and when and what it was all about. Yeah, amazing. It's uh, It'll be a hell of an acting assignment for somebody to try and recreate that, that well, swing yeah. motion. <laughs> somebody's, uh, somebody's really in for it if it ever does come to be a movie. Of course, uh, Mo, Mo and Me is your, your latest golf venture, but you've been in the game and around the game for a very long time, Lorne. You're a very handy player yourself. You've played at an elite level. You've caddied at an elite level. I was very, uh, I was intrigued to read recently that the Canadian Open this year will be the last event you cover uh, on a regular basis. You've had a weekly column in the Globe and Mail for as long as anybody can remember. Well, what's happened? What, 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 what's happened with you? What, why? I read a quote that you said that you went to the U.S. Open this year and that the, the pro game just didn't engage you anymore. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I've been, uh, as you say, covering uh, and not so much covering or reporting, but being a columnist for the Globe and Mail, which is a wonderful Canadian newspaper. I read it as a kid. It's our national newspaper, and they gave me the opportunity 32 years ago. Although I've never been on staff there, I feel like I've been a staff writer, and uh, it's been a tremendous relationship with them, being able to write a general golf column. And uh, I just noticed at the U.S. Open at Olympic that um, there's so much emphasis now, you might say, on the celebrity of the sport, and I think, um, you know, on aspects of the game that don't interest me that much. And uh, I just noticed there that um, my interest uh, was waning a little bit. I still love the competition, and I love watching good golfers, uh, great golfers do what they can do. That part of it I enjoyed. And I think also part of it is that um, perhaps just the traveling has gotten a little bit old for me. Mm. And uh, I still hope to go to events. I still hope to, uh, and I will continue to write about the game for our Canadian Golf Magazine, perhaps even do some some things for the Globe and Mail here and there, but not on a regular basis, not on a weekly column uh, basis anymore. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there's some more, I hope there's some more books in it for me as well. Mm. Uh, I think once a writer, always a writer. But I just decided it was time. You know, you get a little bit older and, uh, you know, you got family and uh, you want to travel a little bit and, and, and see them and be with them. And uh, we'll just have to see where it all goes. It's just time for a, a little bit of a shift. Like like golfers themselves, priorities change, don't they, as, uh, as life happens to you? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right. And, you know, there are a lot of magazines that were around um, when I was starting in the game. Golf Journal, the USGA's fine magazine, um, Senior Golfer Magazine started up, their Travel and Leisure Golf, and there were a lot of opportunities for somebody of my generation to write about the game besides the professional mm. game. And those opportunities aren't there as much right now um, if you're trying to make a living at the game. But that's okay. I mean, I had those opportunities for many, many years, and um, it's a tricky business, I think, for a younger writer coming in. And um, the Global Mail gave me the opportunity to write in a very general way about the game. And um, you know, as I say, I hope to do a little bit more for them here and there, but, uh, but not on the regular weekly column basis. Yeah, cer- certainly our industry has changed an awful lot and continues to at a pace that I don't think any of us can keep up with nobody knows what's going to happen newspapers are in trouble all over the world we've got issues down here in australia with newspapers just in the last couple of weeks lots of people being laid off but the game of golf has changed a lot in those 32 years that you've been writing about it as well hasn't it lawn broadly speaking we we talk a lot on this particular podcast it's called state of the game because there's a lot of things that there are a bunch of us who think are concerning with the game the distance that the, the professionals hit the golf ball being one of them and what's that what that has meant to the golf courses that professional golf is played on. What's your take on all of that? Is golf a better game in 2012 as a spectator sport, as a uh, in all facets than it was in 1980 when you started? What's your take on where the game is? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think the game itself is, you know, it's a wonderful sport. It, it really is. For a writer, it gives you opportunities to get close to the players that I don't think exist in sports like, you know, hockey or baseball. You can't go basically onto the field with them. In golf, early in the week, you can go out in the range. You get to know players. You walk around practice rounds with them. You see them. Um, all of that is still the same. I think, again, for younger writers right now, there's a lot of um, kind of intermediaries. There are agents that you have to go through, that sort of a thing. And when I was coming up, it wasn't so much that. So it's changed in that way. It's so much more of a big business. As far as the distance players are hitting the golf ball, um, I think that uh, there's such an emphasis on, on power now. But at the same time, um, major championships, really any tournaments, they come down to heart. You know what some great old writer said many years ago, a man who can putt is a match for anyone and uh, one who can't is a match for no one. So it still comes down to being able to, to, to do something at the end of a golf tournament, and whether they're hitting the ball 350 yards or not, you've still got to be able to, to do something at the end of a golf tournament, and that's got to do with your head and your heart. So I don't think the, that part of the game hasn't changed that much at all. Um, uh, I do think it's too bad that uh, the game has gotten slower over the years, that there's such an emphasis in North America, particularly on, uh, on, sort of on metal play, stroke play, on result. I think match play is still a fine form of the game, and I wish there were more attention paid to amateur golf. You know, Curtis Cup, Walker Cup, uh, all of the great events around the world in amateur golf. I think that's something that's been lost in terms of covering the game. Uh, and there's such an emphasis. I think going back to this emphasis on power, I think people are golfers are, are kind of you know, often delude themselves into thinking that the latest greatest driver is going to really help them. I mean, if you don't generate a certain amount of clubhead speed, you're not going to be able to hit. Get the advantage of the golf ball or the golf clubs but still people go out and spend a small fortune on golf clubs and then they start thinking of the game as an, as an expensive game it really doesn't have to be that way but when you just buy into the prevailing philosophy you're going to think it has to be an expensive game and uh, I think that's too bad but I still think it's a wonderful sport you can go out there and play four or five holes and just uh, have a have a terrific time you don't have to play 18 holes and count your score but of course most people want to do that it of course, golf has been a great recreation for so, for so long, but somewhere along the way, in sort of the mid to late nineties, it turned into a multinational business, didn't it? That that's kind of what's driven that whole buying the latest and greatest piece of equipment. It suddenly, retailers discovered golf and this market that you could sell to. And I wonder whether that's been necessarily good for the game generally. Uh, I don't think necessarily it has been. I mean, uh, I think that uh, it's encouraging to see a return to what everybody's calling minimalist golf course architecture these days. I mean, Bandon Dunes and Mike Kaiser uh, out there and the west coast of the states and um, Ben Crenshaw and Bill Coor have done wonderful work with Sand Hills and here in uh, Canada, Nova Scotia, just on June 29th, a wonderful golf course that... Uh, uh, called Cabot Links opened up and is getting rave reviews, and Mike Kaiser is also involved in that. Uh, so I think that at least they're starting to be returned to some of the virtues of the game by necessity because uh, um, it's just so expensive to maintain golf courses the way they've been maintained, uh, the Augusta National Syndrome and so on. Um, so I don't think the business is... Uh, I think it's it's made it a little bit too difficult for people to really think about the great virtues of the game, the virtues of the game that have always been there. And I think if you just think about, I mean, when you go to a driving range and you see 13 and 14 year olds and all they're caring about is how far they hit the golf ball. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the game, of course. And everybody says you have to hit the ball 
uh, 300 yards to contend these days and to compete. But then we see Zach Johnson, uh, or we see Mike Weir winning the 2003 Masters. So I think there's always going to be room for somebody who's a, a wily and creative player. Unfortunately, there just aren't as many opportunities these days um, for that kind of player to uh, to really make a mark in the game. Indeed. It, it seems to me that we had generations of golfers where the vagaries and the finesse of the game was what captured people, but we seem to have now a generation or two generations of golfers who are almost more captivated by the technology. What sort of shaft can I have? Let's take this driver head, put this shaft in it, see what that does to the ball flight. It's a, there's a different appeal to golf for many well, yeah, to, to me, the fun of the game is going out and using your mind. Mm. Um, for example, when I go out and play quite a bit, I'll go out with a carry bag, a small, you know, one of those McKenzie walking bags, and I, I usually play with nine clubs when I can go out, uh, when I'm not forced into taking a cart, as you often are at courses in North America and Florida and resort courses. But uh, here at home in, in, in Toronto, I'll go out and play at my club uh, with nine clubs. That's what I do 90% of the time. And uh, I don't use, uh, now I realize that, I, and I don't mean that I'm a Luddite in any way, but I'd rather use my eye. I find, I, ha- I find one of the deepest pleasures in the game is hitting a variety of shots and using your eye and carving the ball in there, using the ground if you can, if the course allows it to. So I think one area, I don't think people growing up in the game are necessarily getting the deepest pleasures of the game, and that may be why they're dropping out of the game. I think there's something that is so deep and satisfying about just being able to hit a shot, see the yardage, trust yourself, hit a 6-iron 140 yards if you feel like it, or hit the 6-iron 180 yards if you feel like it, hit it right to left, or hit a conventional shot. But I think these days the golf has become so automatic, you know, based on what the yardage is and what a full swing is. It always amazes me when people uh, say that I, um, I was... You know, I was between clubs. You know, I had a lot of shots where I was between clubs. Well, you know, there shouldn't. I mean, that's a ridiculous term, being between clubs. There's no such thing as being between clubs. Why can't you hit a half shot or a three-quarter shot? I mean, I think that's part of the art of the game. And I think once you start losing that and getting so dependent upon a full swing or getting so dependent upon, um, you know, lasering the distance, and if it's 144 yards, and you know that's how you far you fly your eight iron. That's the shot you're going to. I think you start to lose the deepest satisfactions that the game has to offer and I think gradually the game becomes boring to people and they start walking away from it. That's my view anyway. Mm. It ties up somewhat with that whole match play versus stroke play thing in some ways, doesn't it Lorne? When you play a match, you're playing against somebody. It's a very different vibe to playing in a stroke play tournament where you play against the whole field. They're two very different forms of golf, aren't they? They're two very different forms and they're two different ways of measuring yourself. You're measuring yourself against a card or you're measuring yourself against um, an opponent. Uh, when you're playing match play and it's, 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 and you play faster, I think it's enjoyable and I wish more clubs in North America had foursomes matches, alternate shot matches. Why do we like the Ryder Cup or the Solheim Cup so much, um, or the amateur tournaments, the Curtis Cup and the Walker Cup for the real golf aficionados? Because we get to see different forms of the game and I think golf isn't just one form. It's not just metal play. It's not just a 72 hole competition and, uh, it's amazing to me that People from America, they'll go over to Scotland or to Australia and they'll play golf. They'll say, wow, you know, there are different ways to play. And they come back and they enjoy it so much, but uh, eventually they, they seem to just get back into the old one way of playing the game here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe that'll change as the economy, um, because of the difficulty that people are having in the economy. I think we have to be a little bit more creative in, in how we play golf. Yeah, you, you touched on it earlier when you talked about the U.S. Open. It's become such, and the celebrity-driven sort of nature of the game in this day and age, which I guess is 
kind of inevitable in that, you know, you've now got 24-7 coverage with Twitter and Facebook and, you know, everybody's a reporter, everybody's a photographer, everybody's their own little mini TV station. We're our own little radio station here doing this podcast. But it's become such a big circus, hasn't it, Lorne? And it doesn't matter what the product is. When that happens, you lose something of the soul of it, don't you? Do you feel that at the professional level, that it's... It used to be very different. The, the professionals were far more friendly and more likely to know each other and to get to know each other and have both good and, and bad relationships, which is what some of the great stories are. But a lot of that's been like you, at, at most professional golf tournaments. Now there's 156 very separate professional entities, aren't they? Everybody's their own brand. They've got a manager. They've got all these people around them and sort of they're, they're the brand. It's a completely different thing to what golf used to be 30 years ago, isn't it? Uh, well, I think that um, if there are 156 players at a golf tournament, there are also 156 different stories. And um, I think that that is one thing that, that, that does endure about the game, that every player has his own, his or her own backstory. And if the newspapers or the magazines allow you the opportunity to examine those, I've always found that the stories of mine that get the best response um, are the ones that really tap into that as opposed to just tapping into what a player says. I, I've always felt that the quote mentality in journalism isn't healthy. I mean, uh, the mass press conference, I think, has not been a good thing for golf and for golf coverage. It's, uh, it's almost too easy. You know, you sit in the press room and uh, you don't even have to be at a golf tournament, but really, um, to get the real stories, you want to be out there and you want to be out there following the players and, and seeing who they are and how they're struggling with their own games. And then away from the golf tournaments, you want to spend time with them. I think that's uh, that's what real golf writing is all about. And just going to mass press conferences and listening to what the players say and then uh, a paragraph and a quote and a paragraph and a quote, I honestly don't think people want to read that. And I think that's why readers are dropping off because that is you know, quite mundane, really. It's banal. There's not much to it. And the players themselves um, go through extensive media training, and you don't find many who are going to say very much in a situation like that. And uh, if you can ever find the opportunity, a writer, to spend time with a player, and maybe you'll find that there's an interesting person there, but it's getting more and more difficult, I think, to do that because uh, the idea now of uh, – I, I always laugh that they call these things news conferences at golf tournaments because there's very rarely any news to come out of them. <laughs> Well, as you say, at the top level of the game, what the players are trying to do is avoid all of those things <laughs> that make golf writing great, aren't they? They're trying to stay stay well away from saying anything of note. As you say, they're trained to do so, aren't they? It's a it's a celebrity thing. It's not a it's not a thing about the guy. Tiger Woods is probably the best example. I don't think he's ever said anything interesting in a news quote unquote conference, has he? Well, they get so nervous about, um, you know, you're um, saying something that in the 24-hour universe, as you say, of social media, of saying anything that perhaps can be construed as a, as a little bit uh, off-putting or whatever or offensive to somebody, but they don't show their own personalities. And I have found that quite often the players, uh, once they get to know you, they have... They're very interesting. They're human beings, really. But in press conferences, it's probably when they're the least interesting. When you see them on the golf, I've always felt that the truth of a player is out on the golf course in terms of you know, what they're doing out on the golf course. Uh, and that's where you learn. Hey, look, that player just threw a club or look, that player grimaced or that player threw up a piece of grass when there was no wind at all um, because they, you know, they don't want to blame themselves, which I think is an admirable quality for tour pros. <laughs> Amateurs blame them. We all blame ourselves and they don't. But, uh, you know, I think that's, that's why you have to get on the golf course. 
course, and they've almost made it too easy, really, you know, at these tournaments. And uh, and then, unfortunately, editors come to expect if one paper's covering, uh, let's say, Phil Mickelson at a major, then every paper has to cover Phil Mickelson at a major. And uh, I think the publications that distinguish themselves or that are distinctive are the ones that allow their writers to go out and roam a little bit freely, as the um, as is still done in, in a few uh, instances, but not very often. The British papers used to be wonderful about that. Just uh, you know, not really care too much about what's happening uh, with the main story at all, and go out and find the other stories. These days, everybody knows anyway what happened immediately. So you might as well go out and try and find something more interesting. But uh, I think that uh, quite often it's um, it's it's just not the case. Editors are are a little bit afraid of letting their readers, their writers, roam free. Yeah. Well, of course. They've made the press centre so comfortable too, haven't they, Lorne? They're air-conditioned, there's food, there's fresh hot coffee. There's Why would you want to leave the press centre? It's fabulous. There's televisions everywhere. You can get everything you need from right there in the press centre. You're center. right. It's all right there. And, you know, I mean, it's... Uh you know, definitely the food has gotten a little bit, a lot better at these tournaments, and they provide you with everything that you need. And it's, a, it's a wonderful fraternity, really. It is, but just trotting in players for press conferences, uh, I don't think is doing the game a very good service. Indeed. As you reflect back on sort of 32 years, as you said, you, you'll still be writing about golf, but you're sort of stepping away in some ways. What are the things that that really stick out in your mind? I imagine that you've seen many great moments and lots of wonderful things, and probably some not so wonderful things. What are the things as you look back that stand out to you, some of the moments that you've been really pleased to have been there to be a part of? Yeah, I've been so fortunate to be at some of the events where the great things have happened. I was at the 86 Masters when Nicholas won, and I, I remember uh, running around on that back nine. I shouldn't say running around. You can't run it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but but <laughs> trying to make, I said, where am I going to go? Nicholas is doing this. He's he's making birdie after birdie after birdie and eagling 15. Seve Ballesteros just hit it in the water. Greg Norman's making a run. What's happening here? Where do I go? You know, but that's part of it. You, if you're sitting in front of a television, which quite often you have to do if you're a reporter, but uh, as a columnist, I didn't really have to do that. And I remember just uh, feeling um, that the mayhem around Augusta National that day. And then, of course, in 1996, again at Augusta National, when Greg Norman lost the uh, his six-shot lead to Nick Faldo, who played a wonderful last round shooting 67. I walked around following the two of them with David Ledbetter. That, that was quite something to see the see that last round through his eyes and then watching Faldo win uh, a couple of uh, open watching Tiger win uh, at uh, at the old course by five and shots and by eight shots uh, and then of course being Canadian being there when Mike Weir won the 2003 Masters and falling around for every shot because I was doing I'd already started a book on Mike Weir that year and then he goes ahead and wins the Masters so I had to write the book very quickly <laughs> to get it out in time for Christmas but uh, and then Marlene Stewart's treat our wonderful Canadian amateur I've come to know her very well and have had the chance to play she's the only Canadian member of the World Golf Hall of Fame and even now in her mid to late 70s she can still shoot her age and is very competitive uh it's uh, you know it's i was really lucky to get on with the globe and mail because uh it's a writer's newspaper and uh just just totally luck to walk in and have a sports editor there in 1980 who was sympathetic to what i wanted to do uh and the same at score golf the canadian golf magazine and uh then the other magazines i refer to your golf journal i wrote quite a bit and golf world i've done quite a bit uh with uh now jaime diaz is at the helm of them and i know that they're starting to encourage longer articles again so there are still some opportunities here and there but uh, 32 years it's and getting to know george newtson our wonderful canadian golfer and writing a book with him and 
Nick Price. I did a book with him, um, and he became a friend. And I, I love the art of controlling the flight of the golf ball. I admire players who can do that, and I guess that's one thing that's really sustained me in my writing and probably messed up my own game, being too fascinated <laughs> with the golf swing. <laughs> is, is there less of that these days, Lorne? It's one of the criticisms we often make on this show, that with the modern ball and the modern equipment, that is a part of the game that has gone out of it. Bubba Watson is probably the only one who springs to mind who deliberately shapes the ball uh, in a huge way, most of the other players, because the equipment allows allows it, they're almost dictated that they need to hit the ball long, high, and straight. Is that a fair criticism of the modern professional game? Well, I think, you know, there's so much... Um, the technology is so sophisticated right now, and kids, you know, 10, 11 years old, are on um, you know, the, the V1 track man, that sort of a thing. So they do come out with really, you know, technically superior golf swings, but some of the art, of course, has gone out of it. I think, okay, I think all of these players, though, they have the ability to hit all of these shots, but the only time we really see it is at an open championship, let's say, when the weather gets foul or when the ball can bounce around on links when it's playing very, very firm. And I think that's when we see the creativity in the game, when we see players hitting half shots or having to hit a shot into the wind or downwind and control the flight. Uh, you don't see it very often anymore because it is such a power game. As players have said, they'd much rather, you know, hit the hit a, a wedge out of the rough from 100 yards than be back there hitting a seven iron from the fairway. So it is a little bit too bad. But I guess if you went back 100 years, and I know I've done this and other writers have, you see that this talk about how far the golf ball is going that was going on even back then as well. But uh, we have lost some of the creativity because of that, and um, it's you know, that, that's too bad. But maybe we'll, uh, you know, maybe Bubba Watson and some of the players uh, like that. They'll, they'll, they'll. See. I mean, players can be run right off the tour too. I remember Bruce Litsky telling me one time that you hear about the few players who've really gone ahead and changed their golf swings and gone ahead and won majors, like Nick Faldo and Nick Price working with David Ledbetter. But this is a great term Bruce Litsky once used uh, when I was talking. He says you never hear about the players who come out there with ability. Obviously, they're on the PGA or they're talented, but they've been taught right off the tour. That's his phrase, taught right off the tour. Wow. In other words, trying to develop technically perfect golf swings and they lose their flair for the game. And uh, I think that uh, that can hurt a lot of players. Yeah, well, Ian Baker Finch is probably a case in point, isn't he? He's one that you'd, you might uh, look at and say that has happened to. Lorne, we touched on it earlier. You've written an awful lot of books, and obviously the players and the professional game has been a big part of what you've done with your career. But you've also had an interest in golf course architecture and the the fields that the game is played on and uh you know that's one of the things that we like to talk about here on the show you if i recall spent a full year in dornock playing at royal dornock golf i mean you wrote a book about that experience when was that and tell me a little bit about that and what that experience was like as a golfer right that was in the year uh 2000 um i had been to dornock many, many years before, in 1977, and when I could play the game a little bit, I'd gone over and played in the Amateur Championship, the British Amateur, which was at Ganton in England, a wonderful uh, uh, golf course. Um, and I went up to Dornock intending to spend just a day or two, and I ended up spending 10, and I loved it so much up there, the remoteness of it, and Donald Ross, of course, was born there, and uh, the um, the Lynx golf course, and the mountains, and the sea right there, and the firmness of the ground, and just the beauty, and the fact that the town had about 12 or 1,300 full-time residents, and golf was such a, of a main language spoken there, but I didn't get back there. Uh, until 2000, 23 years later, an Open Championship was never held there, so I didn't get back there. But I, I decided in 2000 I really wanted to spend a summer uh, 
back at Dorna because it had left its mark on me. I'd kept all of my notes from 1977, and uh, my wife and I, we rented a small flat above a local bookstore, which became part of the story of my being in Dornick that summer. And uh, I spent three months uh, there and wrote this book called uh, A Season in Dornick. And it's uh, it's about the golf course and my relationship to the golf course and the friends I met there. And uh, I became a member of the club. I'm still a member there. I hope to get back this fall. And it's, to me, the one place, if I was, people always ask you, where would you go? And I say, Royal Dornick. That's uh, that was a tremendous summer. I made so many friends there, and I'd get up sometimes at five in the morning with the long light there, walk over to the golf course. It was very close to where I was living, and um, play a quick 18 holes, you know, or 12 holes or whatever, in a couple of hours. Then I'd spend a full day researching or writing, or my wife and I would hike and cycle, whatever. And then in the evening, about seven or eight o'clock in the summertime, I'd come back and I'd play another round. So I had a full day, and I'd start it and finished it with a round of golf. There's a there's a big difference in the culture of golf in the UK, and particularly a place like Dornoch, which I think we could safely say is very much a golf town, and the culture of golf that you find in North America and even here to Australia, in a certain extent, is there's a very different approach to and appreciation of the game. And uh, I remember first realizing that, Rod, when uh, in 1972, when I went to Scotland for the first time, when I was uh, between undergraduate uh, and uh, graduate school, and I remember spending a few months over there, and I was sitting in a little restaurant in Edinburgh, and I heard a couple of overheard a couple of young women uh, who had clearly graduated from teachers' college and were going to go on to their first jobs as teachers, and they were talking about where they wanted to teach based upon the quality of the golf course <laughs> in the town. I guarantee you that's a conversation I would never hear in Canada or the United States, uh, right? Not then and not now. Then I thought, this is my place. This is where I, I must belong. have Scottish blood in me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I do recall on being in St. Andrews, I went with my, a very good friend of mine who's an editor of a golf magazine here in Australia called Golf Australia Magazine, and we, we made the pilgrimage and we went to St. Andrews and we were in the, the pub across the road there, McSorley's, I think it's called, or it was at the time, and uh, I was fascinated to learn that the, the girl behind the bar who was uh, pouring the drinks for us played off four and could probably yeah. outdrive me. <laughs> That's not uncommon That's in right. Scotland, is it? You don't get that elsewhere. No, in Dornoch, as they often said, nobody cares about what you do, whether you're a doctor or a teacher or whatever. All they care about is your handicap and how fast you can play. <laughs> what do you think about the game going forward, Lorne? There, there are two very different games of government. I think Bobby Jones once said it, you know, there's golf and there's tournament golf, and the two are completely different things. What about the game at a recreational and an amateur level? It's, it's had its struggles and continues to have its struggles in most places around the world where the game is popular, the, the recreational golf and the amount of time that it takes and all those other factors do you have an optimistic outlook for golf is this just a market correction that was bound to happen golf of course boomed in the 80s on the back of sort of greg norman then followed by tiger woods and i suppose there was bound to be at some point an inevitable hangover lots and lots of golf courses built probably too many and many of them not particularly great golf courses what, what do you see for the future you mentioned core and crenshaw and doke and we've got mike clayton down here in australia this was mm-hmm. the idea of return to minimalist golf do you have an optimistic outlook for the game uh, I think I have what I would call a realistic uh, view of the game. I mean, people often talk about, you know, the Tiger Woods effect and that sort of a thing and how he's going to bring so many people into the game. I don't believe that ever really happened. And I think, you know, golf golf was, was, was pretty hale and hearty before Tiger came around, and it'll be okay after he's gone, after he retires, I mean, entirely. I mean, the people that came to golf because of Tiger, I, I hear from a lot of people who only follow golf or watch tournaments when Tiger's in it. Or in Canada, they would only they would tell me they're only interested in the golf tournament for a few years there when Mike Weir was 
playing in it. But I don't think those people are golfers. I mean, sure, the advertisers and the television people want them because, you know, maybe they can sell a few cars or whatever, or whatever they're advertising on, on, the, uh, on the tournaments, whatever the sponsors are. But I don't think those people are the ones going out and buying the equipment. So I think that, um, you know, golf itself is such a good sport, so interesting. It captivates people. It grabs them. And I think it may always remain a niche sport. I mean, sometimes I think it's kind of futile, this whole notion of growing the sport. So often people get into golf because they happen to be living near a golf course. Uh, you know, who knows what the reasons are. They just happen to, a friend takes them out to a golf course, that sort of a thing. So, and I think once they start to play it, they really enjoy it. And I think it'll probably continue along uh, in that way. I don't think it's ever going to be a gigantic sport. It's certainly not going to be ever as popular, I don't think, as a game as, uh, you know, soccer or football, as it's uh, properly called, I guess, around the world. Um, maybe not even uh, as popular as basketball. It's uh, basketball is less expensive. All you need is a court to play. So I think golf will always be a very, very um, popular sport with a small group of people, and they will be intensely devoted to it over a long period of time because it's a lifelong sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess I'm an optimistic realist. For want of a better term, let's, let's call them um, sort of real golfers or genuine golfers. If you if you break it down, it's always struck me that during economically difficult times and whatnot. Real golfers will uh, dispense with other discretionary spending before they give up their golf. I think that, to me, seems to be uh, the the sort of the line in the sand, if that makes sense. You know, that the, the genuine golfers, when things go bad and there's less money about, they'll do away with other things before they even think about giving up their club membership or not playing as much golf. It invokes a passion in people, doesn't it, um, golf? Yeah, I think that's true. I remember Frank Hannigan, who was the executive director of the United States Golf Association. I'll never forget, I was at the senior... British Open, I was invited to play in the Pro-Am at Royal County down a number of years ago in 2000, actually, the year I spent, summer I spent in Dornock, I went over there, and he was saying, you know, golf at the highest level at the professional game could disappear, he said this, and yet golf, people would keep playing golf. I mean, I know a lot of people at my club in Toronto, honestly, Rod, they don't follow the professional game that closely, they don't care about the professional game that closely, they care about going out and playing with their friends and banging the ball around and having a drink after, I think those are, uh, you know, those are, that's an important group of golfers, and I really do think that um, if the professional game um, disappeared or waned, let's say, or wasn't as popular, then I think golf would still continue, there may, there wouldn't be as many golf courses, maybe not quite as few golf, many golfers, but I still think the game would uh, would continue to be popular, as I say, uh, with with a, a fairly substantial, if small, compared to other uh, sports group of people. Mm, that sort of that that hardcore of uh, of golfers. Lawn, what will happen to the Globe and Mail once you stop writing your column? I'm certainly going to miss it. I'm sure there's thousands of people, particularly in this day and age. It's not just in Canada that people get to read your column. All over the world we do because of the internet, which has been a wonderful thing. Um, what's going to happen? Is somebody else going to fill your space? Um, I don't know. I have no idea if the newspaper has any plans. As I say, I, I think I'll probably still do a little bit of writing for them here and there. We talked a little bit about that, but we'll have to see. It's still very new because it's only very recently. I said that uh, I would be uh, stopping the column after the Canadian Open, but uh, I'll continue writing for magazines and then hopefully uh, hope I'll do some books. And we'll just have to see where it all goes. I have the feeling um, I'll be writing as long as I can stay healthy, and uh, I know I'll always enjoy the game and like playing it, and I'll maintain my interest in it. So uh, we'll have to see where it goes. But I think I'll, I'll continue writing, just not so much in that forum. Yeah, th- those of us who've been reading your stuff for a long time will certainly miss you, Lorne. I think I speak for an awful lot of people 
when I say that. You have been one of the uh, the modern era's great commentators and analysts of the game. I've always enjoyed reading your stuff, and so uh, so we will certainly miss it. Is there is there another area of life or interest that you're going to be writing about? Is golf still your main thing, or do you, is, I'm assuming there's other things that you want to do? You're going to have more time on your hands, I would assume, not having a, a weekly column to be a slave to, so to speak. Well, I'm interested in a lot of things, you know, areas besides golf. Whether I'll write about them or not, I don't, I don't know. You know, perhaps not, but I think I'll probably, um, you know, indulge my interest in some other areas of life. I'm going to, you know, continue. I like reading widely outside golf. I like listening to music, and there are a number of things I'll probably do uh, and spend a little bit more time on. Lorne, you will be missed, certainly by me, and I'm sure many others, as I said. Uh, it's been fabulous to talk to you today. We appreciate you taking some time. Good luck with future endeavours, and... Uh, it sounds like it won't be the last time we get to read your your uh, your golf writings, which is fantastic news, but perhaps just not quite so regularly. So we'll miss that. But uh, thanks for taking some time to have a chat to us today. Thank you, Rod. A pleasure talking to you. All the best. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.